Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Alfry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Daniel Schwartz, Fredrickson and Byron Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School, Josephine Wolf, Associate Professor of Cybersecurity Policy at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, and Daniel W. Woods, Lecturer of Cybersecurity at the University of Edinburgh's School of Informatics. We will discuss their article, How Privilege Undermines Cybersecurity, which will be published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Technology. So welcome to the podcast, all of you. Thanks so much. Yeah, great to be here. Okay. Well, I was wondering, for the for the purposes of the show, if you could talk a little bit about the nature of your collaboration and in particular how it got started, because you're all coming from such different fields and such different places. Yeah. So maybe I should start because I think I, I initially had this project where I saw some practitioners speaking on Twitter about how cyber insurance was gatekeeping um, who investigates cybersecurity incidents. So these were cybersecurity practitioners. And I kind of launched this project trying to understand how insurance did that. And through that, I found that actually lawyers were central to the insurance ecosystem. So insurers tell their clients to first call a hotline, which is answered typically by a law firm in the U.S., And there were a number of ways in which lawyers kind of um, organized investigations that made very little sense to me, a computer scientist. So I took these results and kind of presented them at a cybersecurity policy conference, which is where Josephine picked it up as um, the discussant of the work. And Dan actually really drove the project in terms of thinking, well, we should investigate this further. We should understand more about this. Yeah, I was as as I was I was just in the audience, really. Uh, uh, I, this was all virtual uh, uh, in the midst of uh, of the pandemic, and it just occurred to me that there were so many angles that um, uh, I didn't fully understand about how the law was operating. And you know, Daniel's a computer scientist. Josephine's also a computer scientist, but also like a public policy person. Uh, I, I can let her to, to, and I, I'm, I'm the law professor. And I, I was just sort of really curious about some of the legal angles, uh, uh, particularly regarding some of the communications between insurers and attorneys, because when I had encountered that, not in the cyber insurance setting, but just in the ordinary liability insurance setting, there's a very complicated set of rules regarding when uh, 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 attorneys can communicate with liability insurers and when that's privileged and when conflicts arise, how to deal with that. And I was just really curious how those rules uh, applied in the cyber insurance setting, but it seemed like uh, they were having big consequences. And I, I just hadn't really seen any work on that. To begin the conversation, uh, and particularly for, for non-lawyers or or maybe lawyers who aren't that familiar with this subject matter, maybe junior lawyers. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by privilege in the context of this paper and, and maybe even kind of give a brief description of the attorney-client privilege and work product doctrines, how they work and what they're for. Yeah, absolutely. So so this is um, this is Dan, and I'm happy to try to try that uh, to do that. So Attorney-client privilege is a doctrine that is sort of emerges in common law in states and federal settings, and it's designed to ensure 
that communications between an attorney and their client are shielded from discovery so long as those communications are meant to uh, facilitate the ability of the lawyer to provide uh, good legal advice. So you want um, uh, uh, clients to be forthcoming and to not worry that an attorney should be forthcoming and not worry that anything they say or communicate can be used against them. And so the privilege in that setting is meant to facilitate that. Um, Now, what's particularly notable for our project is that the attorney-client privilege doesn't just apply to communications between clients and their attorneys, but it also actually applies to communications between attorneys and any third-party service providers to the extent that those communications are meant to facilitate the attorney's provision of legal advice. So the classic example here would be something like an attorney that needs a translator, say, in order to fully understand what the client is saying, because the client doesn't speak fluent English. So the attorney might hire a translator to come in and facilitate the conversation. And in that setting, it'd be very clear that any communications uh, uh, between the attorney and the translator uh, or between the client and the translator would be covered under the umbrella of attorney-client privilege. Now, work product doctrine is actually a separate doctrine, and it usually uh, 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 comes out of separate procedural rules. And it covers uh, information that is produced in anticipation of uh, litigation. And so, um, uh, uh, so this covers both documents and mental processes of attorneys and any consultants that the attorneys use to the extent that they're prepared in reasonable anticipation of litigation. And um, it oftentimes, both attorney-client privilege and work product immunity are going to provide potential um, uh, 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 protection from communications, but there are different nuances with each doctrine and different limitations of each doctrine that mean that in one context, one might provide uh, better assurances of confidentiality in, in, in some other settings, uh, uh, the other might be the more uh, uh, prominent doctrine. And so they, they often work together, and, and they certainly work together in the context of our article, but at the same time, uh, 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 sometimes one doctrine really is the one that is more uh, uh, pertinent in a particular dispute about whether or not information that was communicated or documents that were communicated uh, between an attorney and either the client or a third party um, uh, can be discoverable. Moving to the cybersecurity side of things, what what exactly happens when there's a cybersecurity investigation? What are they supposed to accomplish? Who does the work and and how does that implicate attorney-client privilege and, and work product? It doesn't seem like an obvious connection between the two. 
Yeah, this is Josephine. I think I think that's right. Um, and as somebody who's been, you know, thinking about cybersecurity and cybersecurity incidents for a long time, I was really surprised by some of the work that Daniel did uh, prior to this project, where he came in and he said, "Look, it actually looks like lawyers are really leading a lot of the incident response efforts in in many cases of these sort of large breaches and and high profile cyber attacks," um, which I think would not have been true. And Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong. Ten, fifteen years ago. Right. I think if you if you were dealing with a data breach, um, let's say even, you know, around 2010, a lot of the time you would have companies that were breached going directly to incident response firms, you know, tech firms like Mandiant or others. And, and say when we have, you know, the Sony Pictures breach, we know that Sony Pictures calls up Mandiant and says, hey, we, we need you here right now. Um, Daniel, is that true that sort of this is something that shifts more towards lawyers recently? So I think it's the place I'm sure that it's true is among smaller firms, and this is through cyber insurance. So some of the firms we um, in the ecosystem are dealing with 2,000 incidents every year, and those firms didn't exist five years ago. So that suggests that those firms five years ago were not calling a lawyer. Yeah, and I think one thing that's really sort of for people who come from technical backgrounds, perhaps like me and Daniel, you, you answer that question, what do you need when there's a cybersecurity incident? Well, you say you need some digital forensics incident response people. People are going to come in and look at all of your logs and say, how did these intruders get in and what did they take and sort of go through the, the technical weeds. I mean, and you still need that, right? That's still a huge part of incident response. And we talked to a lot of those people for this project. But the first step now is often either you go to your insurer and your insurer immediately directs you to a law firm that they contract with or have on a panel. Or in some cases, um, you even see companies going directly to to their outside counsel and saying, here's something. The, the first thing we need to do is protect ourselves legally from any kind of litigation or, or future sort of fallout of this. I mean, in my mind, that's a little bit sort of tied to worrying about some of the class action lawsuits around breaches of personal information, where you do sometimes see litigation, but has really spread to a lot of areas of cybersecurity, like ransomware and other stuff where you almost never see litigation, but you still have lawyers coming in. Yeah. And one thing I'll add there is we even heard uh, in some settings that nowadays when firms contact a mandiant or some servants in response firm, nowadays the, the, the standard practices, they'll say, well, actually, you want to go to a lawyer first, then have the lawyer hire us. So it's sort of become the new norm that essentially all cyber incident response is really uh, handled and coordinated by lawyers. And of course, the reason for that, or at least a a significant reason that sometimes some people might say the predominant reason, others will say significant, uh, uh, but clearly very important in that um, emerging practice is the capacity of the attorneys to shield the entire investigation with attorney-client privilege or work product doctrine so that the information that is generated in that uh, uh, incident response process is not subsequently discoverable in a lawsuit or a regulatory investigation. Hmm. Well, from what I understand, it used to be that cybersecurity investigations were conducted differently. And, you know, attorney-client privilege, work product doctrine, they've been around for a long time. What happened to cause this shift toward uh, lawyering up in such a significant way? I, I mean, one thing I'll say is, 
the importance of early on with a lot of these uh, high profile cyber incidents, you had cyber insurance, right? And cyber insurance provides both first party insurance and third party insurance, right? So it protects you both from sort of direct costs of a cyber incident, whether, you know, whether that's the cost of the cyber uh, response, whether it's the cost of getting your systems up, uh, but it also covers you if you're sued for the cyber incident. And early on in some of the most high profile uh, breaches, uh, what would uh, there really was a quite significant risk of litigation. Um, and then also the, 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 another thing that the, uh, the, the insurance would cover would be the, the process of actually uh, complying with um, uh, various data breach notification laws. And a lot of these initial incidents were, uh, in fact, uh, data breaches. And so personal information was being um, uh, stolen by hackers. And so the, the orientation of insurers who are covering all of this stuff was, gee, we really need to limit our exposure uh, uh, against the possibility of litigation. In order to do that, we need to ensure that, to some extent, the entire process of incident response doesn't inadvertently tee up or facilitate some lawsuits. And so I think in the sort of first phase in the you know early 2010s, when cyber uh, cyber insurance is becoming significant, um, and and the the real risk are these data notif- data breach uh, scenarios where there's a big litigation risk, and frankly, there's not a lot of understanding of how much litigation risk is associated with it. That fear drives this process of putting lawyers front and center, having lawyers operate everything, and. Uh, both the sort of uh, breach notification uh, element and the element of shielding everything through privilege. And I would actually even go a little further um, in, in sort of supporting that argument. I remember doing interviews with insurers in 2018, right? So four years ago now and asking them, hey, have you guys actually found any evidence that any of the sort of security controls and mitigation measures that you require of policyholders have any impact Right. If you require everybody use encryption, does that actually help drive down the risk of breaches or the costs associated with those breaches? And I remember multiple underwriters saying to me, no, we haven't seen any correlation there. Right. We don't see that if you require multi-factor authentication, that helps in our in our claims data. We don't see that if you require encryption, that helps. What we do see is that if you get a lawyer involved immediately, the big costs around data breaches, which are often these legal costs of class action lawsuits and settlements, do go down. And so I think there's this early instinct on the part of the insurers, which is the place that our data actually shows us matters for driving down the costs of these incidents is to get a lawyer involved really early. And that then becomes their default, right? Like that's the only thing that really helps. So we're going to do that for every single incident, regardless of whether or not it's likely to lead to litigation. So is that a problem, right? I mean, it sounds like from what you described to me, it's a difference between like the firms hiring a cybersecurity firm directly or hiring a law firm that hires a cybersecurity firm. And if you get the cybersecurity firm plus the legal protection, that seems like a plus, right? It seems like a benefit. What's what's the issue? So I think I can give the technical perspective and that's that the steps to kind of establish the claim to these confidentiality protections um, introduce delays and barriers to technical practitioners. So there's some contractual tricks that go along, changing the work contract, 
and this can introduce time delays. Sometimes what the lawyers request is that an entirely new firm is brought in who have no existing network access. And of course, that creates problems because the new practitioners need to familiarize themselves with a new system. Then also the practitioners are asked to kind of um, change how they document the investigation. And in some cases, to not document it at all. So they're asked to just do updates on um, video calls orally, not to put things down into emails. And particularly, we heard not to put things down into a final report. And then finally, I think for the security community, um, there's this big kind of belief that if we share information externally, we can make other companies more secure. There's this pro-social instinct. And again, lawyers are advising, don't share that externally. And, and for lawyers, you know, a lot of this is, to be fair, it's driven by the doctrine. So, you know... There's there's a question of whether to frame our papers. Lawyers are screwing things up, or just the doctrine is, and lawyers are responding. And to be fair, it probably is more the form, the, the the latter than the former, because you know what courts have held in uh, determining whether or not attorney-client privilege or work-product doctrine actually should apply and cover these is you have to ask, okay, is the predominant purpose of uh, the uh, uh, work of a, a cybersecurity firm focused on providing legal advice or is it focused on providing um, uh, business advice? So, for instance, if you use the firm, the same cybersecurity firm, the, the pre-breach and post-breach, that has suggested to courts, ah, well, it must be the case that what the cybersecurity firm is doing is more business-oriented, hence it shouldn't be protected by privilege. So lawyers reasonably then conclude, okay, we should bring in a new firm in order to buttress the argument that what the firm is doing is providing, is facilitating the provision of legal advice and hence is privileged. And similarly, there's a, a, um, a, a real movement. Another thing that, that I, I think Daniel may have alluded to, but, but I think is quite significant. Lawyers say, well, if you really don't want to provide sort of generalized advice about how to harden your security system, you need to work at our, uh, uh, by our instruction to help us facilitate the provision of legal advice. So if you just go in and provide, hey, here are 10 or 15 recommendations for improving your network, some of which would have prevented the breach, some of which we discovered, and then all of a sudden it doesn't look like facilitating the provision of legal services. It looks like providing just general business services, and that then is going to undermine your claim that what the cyber incident response firm is doing is in fact facilitating legal services. And, and, and in fact, you know, part of what drove us here is, you know, we talked earlier about the changes in the early 2010s, but really in the last couple of years, there have been some very high profile cases rejecting arguments that what a cyber incident response uh, firm has done is indeed privileged. The, the most prominent is this Capital One case from just a couple of years ago, where Mandiant came in at the direction of Debevoise, a very prominent law firm, did what you know folks thought was necessary in order to shield the entire investigation from uh, discovery, including uh, uh, while well, it produced a final report, it, just, it sent the report directly to the lawyers, and the lawyers only sent it to a few people within the firm. And the court held, look, 
this is more about business-oriented goals than legal goals, hence it's discoverable by this class, that set of class action plaintiffs. And so that, one of the things we heard repeatedly in our interviews is that case in particular has really driven, uh, after say, well, that lawyers say, well, now don't re- produce a report at all because we don't know if it's going to be privileged. And don't hire this, don't just use the firm you were using before because then it will be viewed as business. And don't have the communications directly between the cybersecurity firm and the client, because then it looks like this, route everything through us and have the cybersecurity firm be working at our direction. And so that really changed, I think, uh, was a watershed moment in changing how all of this is thought of to uh, uh, really say, look, if you want privilege, and, and that really is sort of this focus of Work product, work product immunity, or attorney-client privilege. You really have to take these pretty significant measures that, as as Daniel alludes to, can can undermine actually the 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 technical process of just figuring out how to uh, diagnose and respond to an incident. And the other thing I would add to that is there's also, I think, a real long-term loss here from a cybersecurity perspective. So there's sort of some of the the short-term immediate investigation stuff. It's slower to conduct an investigation. You bring in a new firm. They have to kind of figure out where things are and how the networks are set up. There's the medium term. You know, we don't get a report. We don't know how to remediate these problems because nobody's allowed to put recommendations into that report if it even exists. And then I think circling back to the insurers, you have this problem where the folks who are supposed to be collecting, you know, long-term empirical data about trends in threats and countermeasures and their effectiveness are not able to access it, are not able to collect it because they're being told, uh, no, this is privileged. If we disclose it to you, then we'll have waived privilege. And, and so going back to what I said before about how four years ago, the underwriters were like, well, we don't really see any correlations in effective countermeasures. I think now you talk to underwriters like we can't even get data about what countermeasures are being used. We're, we're not allowed to see these reports or these reports aren't being written. Um, and, and similarly, for for some of the regulators we spoke to, they said, you know, well, like I'll I'll sometimes ask on a call with a company, hey, is there a report? But I, I don't even expect them to say yes at this point. And I know if there is, they're not going to show it to me. So I think we're also losing sort of long term knowledge about how the threat landscape is shifting and how to do a better job of protecting businesses against these types of threats. So one of the major contributions I think of the paper is the study that you mentioned. I wonder if you could talk about what the study was intended to accomplish, who you interviewed and and why, and whether there were any no, kind of notable findings that arose out of the study. So we started doing interviews. Um, and, and I think, you know, did a lot more of them in a much shorter period of time than I've perhaps ever done for any project before. Uh, we talked to dozens of lawyers who do incident response um, and, and who kind of lead these teams. And, and we talked to them at a range of different firms, right? At big firms that cost a lot of money and do a lot of other stuff. And also at some of the smaller firms that really just focus on breaches and, and kind of making that their whole business that process thousands of, of these incidents in a year. Um, and we talked to also a, a smaller number, but I, I think about 10 or 12 incident response digital forensics investigators, sort of the technical people who, who come in and are usually contracted through the law firm to actually run the investigation, actually write the report, um, but are working through these lawyers um, in most cases. And then we talked to a few sort of third 
third parties that try to access this information in various ways. So we talked to some insurers, um, we talked to some insurance brokers, we talked to some regulators, we talked to some information sharing professionals in the cybersecurity community. Um, I think we talked to one kind of communications person who comes in when there's a breach and, and helps sort of craft the message around how that's going to be communicated. And at each of, you know, so the, the interviews varied a little depending on, on what type of person we were talking to. But for the lawyers, we really want to understand how do concerns about privilege shape what you do? right? Are you contracting with the incident response firm directly? What kinds of instructions are you giving them about what they can and can't write down? What kinds of things you believe are protected by privilege and do you not? And then for the IR people, the the sort of uh, technical digital forensics folks, we were asking them, okay, what are you being told and how does that affect your work, right? What, what are you not allowed to say? Things like that. And I'll say, I mean, what motivated us to, to use that methodology was you know, the others had written, there were a few other uh, papers writing about, gee, speculating really about, about the fact that some of these doctrines could have uh, effects on how incident response is conducted. Uh, some courts had speculated on it. Uh, uh, there was a law review article by Jeff Kossoff that had looked at this. There was actually a, a, a report that was uh, produced that uh, uh, um, uh, looked in, at, at some of these issues in depth called the Sedona Report. But all of it was speculation. And what we really wanted to do was to get a sort of uh, broad-based view of what's going on. And given that there wasn't a lot of data about how the legal rules and the role of attorneys was affecting incident response, our thinking was, well, at this stage, a sort of broad-based, qualitative approach, just speaking with a broad range of industry actors would be uh, informative. And I think one element that was particularly informative for us is, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, a number of the, the lawyers we spoke to who conduct incident response gave us some pushback and said, well, gee, you know, what I do doesn't compromise uh, 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 my firm's cybersecurity. The way I conduct things is is actually uh, uh, perfectly consistent with not only their interests, but also broader social interests. But then you, you, we would talk to all these cybersecurity professionals, we talked to all these insurers who'd really say, no, this is really a huge impediment to what we do. And we heard that repeatedly from cyber incident response firms um, who I think aren't, don't always feel free to communicate that in the context of a specific investigation because they really are working uh, uh, under the control of attorneys. And not only that, attorneys have a huge say in who, who is hired. And then for insurers, you know, it was really um, enlightening to hear how frustrating some of them are, particularly those who work on the underwriting side of things, about how little data and information they're able to get regarding uh, when their underwriting processes fail. Isn't a, at least potentially there, there is that uh, failure. So w when you, you, know, you have a policyholder and then they're subject to a breach, you want to know, was there a failure in our underwriting? What did we fail to see? Was there some uh, element that actually contributed to this breach that we should have seen in our underwriting stage and didn't? And they can't get reports. They oftentimes can't get straight answers. They can't even talk to the folks who did the investigation. They sort of describe this game of telephone 
where they have to talk to the lawyers who will then sort of orally answer maybe some questions, but not answer any questions in writing. And what the lawyers are saying is different than what the the technical people may or may not know. And it's just at such a high level of generality that it is not terribly helpful. I just wanted to add two methodological points. The first was about recruitment. We were speaking to um, people with deep expertise who charged a high market rate. There was no way we could offer a financial reward for them to join. And before actually Dan and Josephine joined the project, I was struggling to hire lawyers in particular. It was quite easy to find uh, forensics investigators to speak to me and insurers, but the lawyers were tricky. And Dan just sent these um, emails directly to the chairs of different security and privacy group. And that seemed to work in terms of recruiting lawyers. I'd also say the second interesting methodological thing is about generalization. There's kind of this problem that if we just spoke to lawyers, you could say, well, you spoke to 20 lawyers and that is the advice that just was specific to those 20 lawyers. But because we spoke to insurers and forensics professionals, we could ask, well, in general, what kind of advice the lawyers provide? And we found it kind of all matched up. And I think that was interesting because it increased the confidence I had in generalizing these results beyond just the lawyers we spoke to. One thing I noticed when I was reading the paper was that it seemed like different law firms, maybe different kind of categories of law firms responded to these incentives in different ways, maybe some of them in healthier or less healthy ways than others. I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that phenomenon to the extent you observe that. Yeah, I think that it is the case that we heard different approaches from different lawyers, of course. And I do think that in general, our sense was, look, the big money lawyers at fancy firms were much more nuanced in how they thought about some of these issues in terms of, do we write a report or not? Do we uh, 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 first get uh, the tripartite agreement in place uh, or not? Um, And there were a lot more nuances in that. I would say that there were some firms and some lawyers whose entire business is, uh, the entire firm is structured around breach incident response. And for them, there almost seemed like this fervor about attorney-client privileges being the centerpiece of what their role was. And there was a template for how to do it. And a lot of times their business model was, you know, frankly, we're hiring younger associates to run these things. We give them their temp, this template, that, and then they go. And the template is you hire this firm, you under tripartite agreement, they're only oral discussions, it all involves the lawyers, through this protocol, then we, um, uh, uh, you know, then we move forward. And for their perspective, I think there, there are some firms in some places where uh, it's sometimes derisively called breach mills, uh, where I think their entire business model is, is premised on, uh, uh, on really preserving attorney-client privilege and work product doctrine and doing so using these techniques. And perhaps not surprisingly, they're also the ones who who are most sort of vocal in their assertions that attorney-client privilege absolutely holds if you just use this template, right? So I think a lot of the other firms we talked to said, you know, look, it, it, it's looking a little shaky after that Capital One decision. We're not always sure how well we can protect stuff. Um, the firms that have really made this their core business, for the most part, were like, no, you just have to do it right. And if you just sort of do this by the book, then absolutely you can keep everything privileged or protected under work product doctrine. 
And being hypercynical, doing it right is also the protocol that gives the most power to lawyers and allows them to bill the most hours. But that's just me being very cynical. So arising out of the study, sort of in your conversations with all of these different people, what kind of emerged as the biggest costs associated with this kind of hyper-focus on privilege in the context of investigations? So I think there are sort of short, medium, and long-term costs. I think there's a short-term cost of how quickly can the investigation get underway, how familiar are the people conducting it with the, the systems and, and networks that they're investigating, um, how, how free are they to sort of talk to the IT people that they need to get information from, and, and how many hoops do they need to jump through in sort of in terms of making sure lawyers are looped in on everything. I think there's a medium-term cost, which kind of comes at the end of an investigation which has to do with, are you making recommendations to the breached firm? Are you giving them any written documentation of what you found? If a year from now, they've had a lot of turnover in their IT staff, is there anything that the new people can look back to and say, hey, did we ever remediate stuff? Or was everybody too scared to ever write any of it down? And now all of that is is lost forever. And then I think there are these long-term costs, which are, well, what should we be doing to protect against these threats? What should we be recommending as the most most effective best practices, and we're we're struggling to collect data about that for a number of reasons. But I think this is this is one of them that sort of insurers can't add as much nuanced and rich data to their claims data sets as they might be able to if they had more information about each of these incidents. So you mentioned in the paper that some other people, in, including Jeff Kossoff and this Sedona report, have made kind of recommendations or suggestions about change from a kind of abstract perspective. I wonder if you could kind of characterize briefly what they said and how your study and your more kind of granular on the ground look uh, at what's taking place through the lens of the people actually doing it prompted you to make some modifications or, or different suggestions. One of the things that, that drove some of the earlier uh, uh, studies and concerns was was the sense that actually a lot of um, there are a lot of distortions not only in incident response but in the actual uh, uh, process of trying to prevent incidents in the first place, and that a lot of the law can distort that process. And so that that concern, for instance, drove. Um, uh, Kasov to suggest this sort of broad attorney client, or sorry, this broad cybersecurity privilege that would attach to the provision of cybersecurity uh, services broadly speaking, not just pre, uh, not just post incident response. And one of the things that we found that was striking was that really we we didn't find too much evidence that the law or lawyers were distorting. Uh, pre-breach uh, uh, preparedness, at least not nowadays. There's such a focus on having sufficient controls in, in place uh, 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 for a variety of reasons that the prospect of that may or may not be discoverable was just, you know, third, fourth, fifth order. Um, so in one hand, we were concerned that some of the proposals actually were overly broad. Um, on the other hand, uh, we, we, they, they were also narrow in the sense that even after, after incident response, it would be a, 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 a narrow privilege, and this is what the Sedona report suggested, that could be overcome in a variety of circumstances. And our concern was, 
given how much you know privilege is and work product considerations are distorting the incident response process and how significant we feel the uh, potential harms are, we felt, look, it's important to actually uh, have a pretty robust uh, uh, set of confidentiality protections for incident response and to untether those protections from the provision of legal services so that you can actually be, have some assurances of confidentiality in your incident response, even if you don't work through lawyers. Um, at, at the same time, we wanted to make sure that that didn't limit accountability. And so those were some of the sort of broad concerns that led us to think about, okay, well, how do we actually craft a solution given all of the sort of evidence that we've seen that is more um, directly tied to the evidence we found about wh- where the problems are and where, where the problems are not. I couldn't help but wondering, uh, like, after having done this report and, and thought about the recommendations that you would make, like, what would you want to convey to the people you talk to, especially the lawyers, about the consequences of their decisions and sort of, you know, how to finesse the current state of affairs, even if kind of major doctrinal changes don't happen? I think mine would be that for smaller firms and small incidents where there's little likelihood it will result in litigation, maybe that's where we should question the value of this maximalist approach to pursuing client attorney privilege, particularly because the insights from those smaller firms are likely to be easier to kind of derive and quantify over time compared to large firms where they're very um, heterogeneous. So it actually makes statistical analysis more difficult. Great. Well, if anyone has any closing closing thoughts or if there's something I I haven't asked that I should have, uh, let me know. I think the last thing I would say, sort of building on that point, is that we still know so little about what actually works for cybersecurity, right? We still have so little good hard data on these are the security controls that really matter and make a difference. And and so it's not a it's not a small question, right? There's lots of advice, there's lots of recommendations, there's lots of things called best practices, but to actually get inside these incidents and understand what went wrong and how we can do a better job preventing them, the stakes are really high. Hi there. The the progress we've made is is pretty unimpressive over the course of the past several years. And so I do think this really matters, right? It matters for the individual firms, perhaps, but also more broadly for our ability to do a better job of protecting everybody. Great. Well, thanks to all of you for coming on the program. It's a really great paper, fascinating study, and important recommendations that I hope will be impactful in coming years. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Just
But the girl he once knew Paid no attention And just let it be But keeping a secret from me Let it be. 